Hello and welcome to the Tillage Edge with me, Michael Hennessy. This is your regular update for all your tillage news and advice. This week we hosted the Malton Barley webinar, which covered many areas such as liquid nitrogen, cover crops, ramularia, and the activities as part of the Chagas Four Malt Joint Program. There were a large number of questions asked at the webinar, covering some really interesting angles, as worth listening to them again. The panel was Deirdre Doyle, Owen Lines, Richie Hackett, all from Chagas, and Tom Bryan from Boardmalt. The first question was to Deirdre Doyle around stresses which can increase ramularia in winter barley. There are a number of different stresses that are likely to exacerbate the amount of ramularia uh, that can come into your barley crop. So, um, so to start with weather, so like you're saying, yes, there's a lot of rain out there, um, particularly if you if you get a lot of rainfall. Um, and if this, particularly if this happens kind of around the flowering stage, uh, this is likely to um, exacerbate stress on, onto the crop and then this may lead to um, for, uh, ram- the development of ramularia symptoms. Um, and then just flowering alone itself is also a stress on the crop. Um, but then when it comes to things that we can actually kind of control ourselves apart from the weather, um, things like complicated tank mixes. So not to add in too many actives into your tank at the one time, you know, because it'll just it'll heat up the mix too much and can add quite a lot of stress to your plant there. And then also trying to control any other diseases that might come into the plant. So even earlier on, like I was saying, protecting your early tillers. It's like if you have the likes of Rinko or net blotch coming in there just to, and to make sure you're using a good fungicide program there that will help to control all these diseases to then just reduce stress um, on the plant throughout it's it's um throughout the, the growing season of the plant okay so it's a it's a it's pretty liable to stress is basically what you're saying there's all sorts of things yeah. to do it Deirdre, just a follow-up one there um just in terms of do you know the percentage of seed that's out there that is already infected with ramularia um, I don't know exactly how much um, is infected. We just know that there is there is a certain amount of it that can be infected, and that's where a certain that's where some of the ramularia can come through into the crops. Okay, I, I think in just in the background, I think there's a good bit of it actually is infected from from year to year. Okay, uh, yeah. Richie, I'm just going to come across to you for a second. Um, Richie, can you include sulfur with uh, UAN? Um, yes, so there's there's a number of formulations that come with, with sulfur included. Uh, so I was speaking mainly about the pure UAN, but there are su- versions with sulfur as well. So you just ask your, your merchant and, and they, they will supply that for you. Okay, and Richie, I also wanted to ask one, there's a good few questions around UAN and the losses in terms of the environmental losses. And, and maybe you might maybe expand a little bit on this, but there's a question we'll just start off with it is, um, so when UAN gets into the soil, um, how long does it take before it's stable and before those losses are reduced? Um, it depends on what you mean by get into the soil. So if it's just sprayed on, it's probably not going to get into the soil very much and it's still going to be at risk. But if it's if it gets rain, like any fertilizer and it's washed a little bit deeper into the soil, it, it'll be the same as any other fertilizer. Uh, in terms of how quickly it becomes available to the crop, it uh, urea breaks down quite quickly. It's a matter of days after it's uh, applied to, to the soil once the urea enzymes gets to work on it. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm going to co- come across to you, Owen. Uh, there's a, co- a good few questions in here around cover crops, and there's one in here for a long continuous um, uh, cereal site uh, there for the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, does the establishment of a cover crop on that kind of soil, uh, is it necessary to have nitrogen uh, going in to establish that crop or is there enough nitrogen already in the soil? It depends on the crop offtakes from the previous crop, the previous spring barley crop or winter barley. 
Um, look, if, it, if it's a poor crop beforehand, you would imagine that enough nitrogen is already in the soil to allow the crop to grow. Um, if a large previous crop has come off, um, look, there should still be enough nitrogen, but if it plans to graze the cash crop, maybe some nitrogen might have to be added. Okay. And Owen, I think you might have mentioned this already maybe in, in the video, but a question in here, uh, where does, uh, or at what timing does, does catch crops release that nitrogen back to the next crop? Yeah, so it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when the nitrogen will be released from the catch crop back to the, the malt and barley crop. But I suppose, as I said in the video, the guidelines will be just to assess the, the catch crop and, and see if, it, if it's stemmy or leafy. And I suppose after the, the, the catch crop naturally dies or dies by an application of glyphosate, um, no, the nitrogen will be released back if it's stemmy quite slowly, if it's if it's a leafy crop, maybe quite quickly. Okay. Uh, Richie, I'm just going to go back to you for a second. Um, there's a question here that around the, John Spink mentioned at the Tillage Conference last year that there was um, there's no need to worry about, uh, I suppose, gaseous emissions from fertilizers uh, from the products we use and not to worry about using um, uh, urea inhibitors uh, in, in, in tillage. Uh, you might maybe expand, and I know you mentioned this in your presentation, you might expand just a little bit on that. Um, yeah, well, I suppose uh, what John was co was comparing was the, the issue with grassland versus versus tillage and use of, of can versus urea. Uh, so if, uh, there's no great advantage to switching from can to protected urea in tillage, whereas there is in grassland, because uh, greenhouse gases emissions are, are lower in tillage to start with. But if you are going to use urea, uh, so if you do decide to use urea, you, you are at risk of, of losing ammonia, which isn't really a greenhouse gas. Uh, and in that case, it's, it's, uh, it would be advised to use uh, protection uh, to prevent that ammonia loss, which is basically nitrogen loss, irrespective of whether you're using granular or, or, or uh, liquid uh, fertilizer. Uh, that's more if you if you do decide to use urea. But as as uh, John's point would have been, there's no great advantage to to switching uh, from an environmental point of view from switching to from can to urea in, in, in tillage. Uh, and... Okay, uh, Deirdre, I'm just going to come back to you maybe for the final question just in this particular segment. And um, there's a question in here about what rate of fall pet or uh, uh, that were used in the programs that you put on. And you might maybe also just comment about whether it should be one fall pet or two fall pets in a spring barley application. What's the ideal? Yeah, sure. So um, we used 1.5 litres of fall pet um, and uh, two kilos of mancozeb. So we used half, um, half rates there um, in our trial. Um, so something similar to what you would use if you were, when we're, if you were applying uh, chlorothanol. Um, as regards applying fulpit twice in the trial, uh, we actually we haven't that we didn't do that in the trial, so we don't actually have any results from that as such. But from the results that we got um, of including the fulpit with the program, um, you can see that it gave very very good levels of control there. So um, it gave sufficient control there by just applying it once at the the on emergency space. So applying it twice probably wasn't wouldn't have been necessary. The second set of questions were quite varied and covered everything from malting barley contracts to components of yield and disease control, including other areas. Kieran Hickey and Stephen Kilday from Chagas joined the panel for the session. The first question was around the level of protein for distilling contracts and was answered by Tom Bryan of Bormalt. In relation to winter barley, the winter barley is purely for brewing purposes. Uh, we have no variety yet identified that uh, is suitable for distilling. Um, there are trials 
uh, ongoing as as you know with the variety vessel which is uh, zero gn so hopefully for uh, harvest 2022 after we get the trial done in 21 harvest we will have or be able to offer a variety for the autumn of this year uh, going forward in relation to the um, brewing distilling uh, barley we, we will attempt to purchase all the barley that we can uh, for distilling to fulfill the quantity that's required. Uh, there is a slight overlap because uh, we can take brewing barley from 8 to 8 protein upwards. So obviously there's a balancing act that will need to be performed in the harvest. And uh, I can't predict at this moment in time whether we're going to have a low protein harvest or a high protein harvest or a medium protein harvest. Although with the weather conditions and the rain that's falling outside the window at the moment, I would think that we're probably looking at a a medium, uh, probably post uh, March 17th, uh, beginning to our, our sowings, which would indicate a, a sort of a moderate protein year. So we will take as much as possible, but it, okay. it really depends on how the barley is coming in, but we have both brewing and distilling contracts to fill. Okay, and just along those same lines, and there's, there's a number of questions in around this, Tom. Um, what are the market prospects like uh, for, for 2021? And how is that going to affect contracts in terms of cuts and so forth? Yeah, surprisingly uh, good, given that we are now almost one year in the, since the original lockdown and uh, most of the wet pubs, uh, whatever that is, uh, haven't opened in the meantime, so they haven't traded. And there's been sporadic training, uh, trading in the other uh, public houses or hotels and establishments. So considering the the environment that we're trying to work in, uh, the reduction on the total contract that we require isn't uh, large. It's in the order of about 15%. Uh, and it will really depend on, on as the time goes by and how quickly the government allows us back out and, and the, the situation changes with COVID, uh, <coughs> that might percentage might reduce a little bit so it's, it's quite low but the brunt of it as max has pointed out is in the brewing sector so we we would have no reduction whatsoever on our distilling volumes uh, only on the, the brewing volumes okay thank you uh, owen i just want to come to you for a second uh, you mentioned about the soil um, analysis uh, that that's available some of the soil tests are available there what from the analysis that are taken so far what's the general um uh, view i suppose or general Results coming back from malt and barley farms? Yes, yeah, so look, the, the majority of the soils would have been taken from the southeast region um, and up towards Leash and Gildare. And really, it's region specific in relation to results that are coming back. But generally, look, if you take Wexford, um, firstly, you know, you're kind of seeing that, that K levels are fairly okay, along with pH levels, but that P level is still low. Um, and it's hard to build on the Clonroe series soils to build that P up. Um, so look, we are kind of moving towards trying to get more P into the seabed at sown time in order to try and increase them indexes. Um, and as we call, come up further up the region into Carlo Leach, Kildare type area, I suppose it's it's high pH, high P soils, and that causes its own difficulty with, with P lockup um, and K levels maybe slightly lower than where they like to be. So probably a build up for K in, in that region. Okay, thanks, Owen. Uh, Kieran, I just want to come to you for a second. Um, do you have a comment on um, this question here about any info on head yields uh, of tillers versus the main stems, uh, thick versus thin crops? Uh, look, we need to hit 25,000 
grains per meter squared to optimize yield. So generally, uh, and uh, Tom has mentioned this before as well about this um, homogenous mold to have all the grains very similar. So obviously the smaller tillers, and we saw a lot of this last year where in some crops, you actually had a lot of main stems and a second crop developed due to drought conditions in underneath. Now, I, you know, I was expecting to have huge problems with protein and there was a lot of green grains, there was a lot of small grains, but uh, when the grain started to go in and everybody watched in anticipation, but there seemed to be very, very little difference in protein content, uh, which was which was brilliant because it was a big worry. So I'd say, look, what we'd like to do is try and hit that homogenous grain. I, I couldn't emphasize enough what Owen said about the, the seed bed, the seed rate, getting the crop off to a fast start, getting seed, ideally in, on these Clonroach series type soils, getting fertilizer into the seed bed. Um, we're on a, a pea fixing soil down here. Um, Owen mentioned the soil samples there. One thing that we found with the survey was a lot of the samples are coming back low in P. Uh, our soil mineralogy, we have a lot of aluminium in it, which locks up our, 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 our P. So lime, which is something that we don't really hear enough about, uh, particularly calcium lime in this area as well, helps to free up our P, which gives the, the crop a quick boost. And it's like what Max was saying there, if you can get this crop away as quick as possible, you're going to have better tillers. You're going to have a more even crop. And that's what we'd really like to see is more grains that are the same. I, I like, um, yes, smaller grains do yield. But I think for where you're in a, a processing business, the more grain that you can have homogenous, and there was a study done on this a number of years ago in Chagas, and homogenous grain generally gives a better result. Okay. Thanks very much, Karen. Um, Max, I'll just come to you just for a second. There's a question there around uh, spring barley varieties and it's uh, showing on the variety lists. They're over 11% protein um, and not within spec, um, but I presume we're talking about the so dry matter. Um, and the question is, is there work ongoing to find lower protein varieties? Um, well, I suppose, Michael, the, the high proteins are largely a function of the sites where the variety trials would have been grown and a lot of them would have been badly affected by drought so it's it's a very large seasonal effect there that that, that you're looking at um you know most of those varieties are you know that in in better growing conditions you know the proteins could be three or four percent lower you know so um but in in in, a, in direct answer to the question i suppose there isn't any specific research on, on on varieties for lower protein more just better malting quality which is usually associated with more consistent grain protein in varieties so they are related but specifically on protein no i wouldn't wouldn't think so and of course the department have a, a variety list for spring malting barley variety trial if you like uh, specifically aimed at that to, to look at the, the the quality aspects you were talking about there yeah exactly they're grown on on on, on two different sites as well under slightly different management practices i i suppose but um uh, this year yeah they, they would have been still badly affected by the the very dry april may and early june period okay uh, stephen Kelly, i'm going to come to you now uh, for that for a program uh, for a question there's a question here about the uh, fungicide uh, program on malt and barley trial that was carried out in 2020 um 
is that going to be carried out uh, again in 2021? And was the the high stress uh, disease pressure, was it due to a year effect or what was it due to? So that, that's the, the, the program trial that Deirdre described. It, it is, we carried it out in 2020, but look, as the year that was in it, um, a very stressful year, I should also note, we didn't get ramularia because it's not just the stresses per se, it's also then going to be the weather relationship and the rainfall, etc. It is something that we are going to carry out again in, in 2021. Um, and I suppose we'd be looking, maybe we'll, we'll have the same number of treatments um, and we'll probably include an additional sort of multi-site or combinations there to see if there's anything else we can look at. Okay, Stephen, just a just follow up on the it's around stress as well. A number of questions in there about biostimulants, whether it's seaweed based or other, other types, and have they a role to play in reducing distress in crops? I, I'm going to give the honest answer and say that I, I can't say uh, specifically if they will or, or won't. What I would say is that the indication, like we can look at the, the seasons that have gone back and we can look at data from 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. And in any given year, the stresses there will be different um, and a huge relationship will be with weather. Like, and the 18 is the clear year that stands out in that if we were to look at the risk assessments in 2018, up until probably, I think the middle of May, we would have said it was going to be a massive year for Ramularia and the weather changed. Uh, and that was the biggest driving factor. Now, again, we had huge stress, stresses in those crops early on because there was a lot of rain in, in March into April, etc. So it's not just as clear cut as saying that it's, it's all about the stress. It's about, as Deidre says, the interaction with all those things. And clearly, whether a biostimulant is going to be able to combine all those interactions, I can't give that answer. Um, I would say that we try to manage as much of these stresses as is feasibly possible. Rain, we won't be able to manage. Or lack complex, of, I should say. A, a complex issue, Stephen. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, uh, Owen, I'm just going to come back to across to you for a second, um, just in terms of catch crops and kind of back to, to that again. A uh, question here, is there any best catch crop mix to, to use in a malt and barley situation? I think the, the standard glass mix of the, the fodder rape and leafy turnip is probably the best um, as regards the malt and barley situation. Just like if you take an example, say, of you know, a crop like mustard or something like that that's going to grow very tall and very stemmy over the, the winter period, probably won't be ideal for trying to incorporate back into soil the following year. And maybe a, a crop that's going to fix nitrogen is not going to be good for, for malt and barley either. So the standard glass mix of that, that double turnip um, is probably the best. Best way to go, I think. Okay. Um, Kieran, I'm just going to bounce this one across to you. And it's, it's kind of around cover crops as well. Um, is there any research in terms of P and K or where does the P and K level go? Or does it, does it need to be adjusted if you're growing cover crops on, on, on ground? Uh, in our area here, we see very little, apart from what Mark Boland was saying through the catchments thing there, we see very little effect in nutrient status or it being built up by continuous use of catch crops. They seem, they're very effective at catching the nitrogen on these Clonroach series type soil, but where people, I suppose, it comes back to what's shown in the video as well. The big benefit I see from the catch crops is more in the soil structure rather than the soil fertility. There's definitely, people would say when they're plowing fields that have had good catch crops in them, they're an awful lot freer they seem to break up an awful lot better. The, the, the structure is an awful lot better. But as regards fertility, um, I think the soil samples that we're seeing back in the program over the three years, they haven't really, 
The only ones where I see a massive difference is where people have used organic manures in their rotation, which is not really great for keeping protein levels down. But some of these people would have autumn cereals in their rotations and use of organic manures will lift the fertility. Um, the second one is if you want to re release nutrients and have a real effect is the use of lime. And I can't say it enough. And it's been a real challenge in this area the last couple of years because the weather is not helping. And it's a, it's a catch 22. You're trying to get the crop into the ground as quickly as possible, but you have the challenge of trying to get lime applications out. And on this type of soil, we're looking at an application of five tonne to the hectare, two tonnes to the acre of calcium lime every three to four years. And in the last three to four years, that has been very difficult. So I would say definitely catch crops are a huge help. I would say more so in uh, soil structure and also the workability of the land and also moisture retention as well. The soils seem to be an awful lot healthier where those kind of mixes are going in. I suppose around the P and K, they'll probably be recycled back around from the crop back into back into the next crop again. But I think it's very slow, and yeah. for an immediate follow-on, it's very hard to see it. And we're definitely not picking it up in the soil samples. Okay. Uh, look, time is pretty much against us. There's a good few questions there that we have answered. There's still a few more to go. We're probably not going to get around to them all. But Tom, I'm kind of going to leave the last word to you um, before we kind of finish up. A um, couple of questions in here around the ratio of uh, brewing and distilling barley that, that, that you're, you're going to be taking in this year? Hey, Michael, thanks. Yeah, well, as, as Max mentioned in, in his uh, video, we've performed an analysis of the last five harvests. And actually, we've extended that out for a couple of more harvests as well. <laughs> so in relation to how we distribute the, the actual contract tonnage, so it isn't a ratio, it's a tonnage of distilling and a tonnage of brewing. It will be based on past performance uh, to an extent. So there isn't an actual ratio. So some areas have a tendency to produce more distilling than brewing and vice versa the other way. So it's down to each individual contract will be tailored to match the suitability of each grower uh, based on the 9.7 protein. We must remember that, not 9.3 like it used to be. So it's, uh, it's one that I can and cannot answer. Uh, the answer is that it's tailored to each grower. A little bit fluid then, so, okay. A little bit fluid, yes. Okay, uh, Tom, thanks very much. And uh, thanks very much to everybody today uh, for your contribution, certainly from the contributions from around the country, and but also to the panel here in front of me for to Richie, uh, Owen, Kieran, Stephen, Deirdre, uh, Max, and, and Tom as well. So that's it for the Tillage Edge this week, but don't forget the first Crop Agronomy webinar in a series of Crop Agronomy webinars takes place next Tuesday, March 2nd at 11.30am. For more details, go to www.chagas.ie forward slash tillage month. Don't forget, if you like this podcast, then recommend it to a friend or colleague, and as always, rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. And for more farming news, go to chagas.ie. I'm Michael Hennessy. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with more tillage news and advice.